Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A story in this month's New Yorker details a site on private land in Texas that has been plundered by archaeologists over the decades. For the most part, there was little oversight and even less documentation about what all was uncovered. But at least one set of human remains, and probably more, was taken. Also this week, tribal officials are working to recover important items going on the auction block. It's the plight of cultural objects and ancestors who have no legal protections. We'll get more details after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. There's a long road ahead regarding reconciliation between South Dakota's government and the state's tribes. This could play a factor in the coming election. South Dakota Public Broadcasting C.J. Keene has more. While attending a recent Sioux Falls Rotary Club meeting, South Dakota Democratic gubernatorial candidate Jamie Smith was faced with a question about reconciliation with the state's tribes. We keep working towards it, but I think it's something that's probably never done, but the focus has to remain. The people that were here first shouldn't be treated last. So I have a friend named Ed Ironcloud. Some of you might know Ed from Pine Ridge. He came in. He's a real quiet man. He comes and sits in my office and kind of rocks. I said, Jamie we got to figure out how to make Native Americans be part of the fabric of South Dakota again, instead of just being kind of over here. Incumbent Republican Governor Kristi Noem has vocalized desires to improve state tribal relations, but she's faced pushback on issues like tribal sovereignty over COVID-19 restrictions, as well as her so-called Riot Boosting Act, which some tribal members saw as an effort to limit their right to protest. Representatives from Noem's campaign pointed to Chapter 18 of her book, Not My First Rodeo, in which Noem says her guiding principle on tribal issues has been to, quote, let me try. Smith described Noem's administrative policy surrounding Native issues as, quote, combative. COVID was part of that. I think we have to respect their sovereignty and making a different choice for their people. And then when it comes to how do you work together through our issues, it can't be us as a state going to the tribe and saying, this is what you have to do. Oglala Sioux Tribe President Kevin Killer says reconciliation plays a part in every facet of government. We need to look at all things that the state of South Dakota is involved in, especially around economic development and how to open up those doors. And I know that the governor has Go, Go ED program around economic development, and they have influence over how that's administered. Things like that would go a long way. Killer also cited health care and law enforcement as issues he'd be interested in collaborating with state government on. For National Native News in Rapid City, I'm CJ Keene. The Association of Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums Conference is underway in Temecula, California. One of the focuses is how to help tribal and non-tribal cultural institutions work together, as Rhonda Lovaldo reports. In a presentation, representatives from federal repositories showed attendees how to search their collections online. Barbara Baer, historian and curator with the Library of Congress, explains the importance of doing the training. We want to have a, a two-way relationship and also to consult with them to improve the way we do things and to gain knowledge from them that they can help us with descriptions and um, you know, just things that we experience today of like recognizing a relative in a photograph or something like that, to be able to put a name to that face, it's very important. So. Um, we find in sharing a lot of good comes from it. Amy Mossett, Mandan Hadassah Arikara, and director of the Tribal Education Department talked about finding her grandmother's recording done by Frances Densmore in the collections. I was eventually able to hear 
my great-great-grandmother singing a Mandan uh, garden song. And um, my mother had never heard that. My mother has since passed away, and um, but I am just so um, glad that I was, be I was able to share um, that recording. The Smithsonian, National Museum of the American Indian, and National Archives also were present and welcomes more people to search their collections as they are always updating the information they have, as well as contacting them if more guidance is needed. This is Rhonda Lavaldo for National Native News. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com news. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks to the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, museums, universities, and other institutions that receive federal money must turn over remains and items of cultural patrimony. Of course, it's never that easy, but getting items repatriated is even more difficult when they are in private collections or taken from sites on private land. Even as awareness has grown of the ethical problems of housing and displaying ancestors' remains, there are still places that keep such items in their collections. And there is the persistent problem of auction houses ignoring pleas from tribes as they continue to sell off important objects from private collections. You're welcome to join our conversation today. How does your tribe work with individual collectors or landowners with repatriation? What would you do if you found remains or cultural items on your land or in your relative's basement? Our number is 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. We have producers standing by. We're waiting. Joining us now from Alpine, Texas, is Brian Schroeder. He's the director of the Center for Big Bend Studies at Saul Ross State University. Brian, welcome to Native America Calling. Well, thank you for having me. Brian, let's get into it here. There was an article uh, in the New Yorker a while back about remains found in a cave on private land in Alpine, Texas, where you are. Can you tell us more about this cave? Uh, yeah, the cave is located um, kind of down by the Rio Grande, um, right on the Mexican uh, Mexico-United States border. And um, it's a very prominent cave. The landowner has always been really interested in having somebody look into it again. It's a new landowner. Um, he's owned it since about... I believe 2010, somewhere in there. And he's always, you know, he's wanted somebody to look into it. But um, nobody's ever really, you know, gone out there because it's got this very uh, storied 
past. And when, you know, as an archaeologist, you know, you go out there and you see that there's, I mean, there's really not much left in it. It's been really dug and messed with and, um, but it's still a super prominent place on the landscape. And that's, that's kind of what drug me down there and got me interested in it. So this cave uh, has been known, people have been, been going in there for, for a long time, many, many, many years and finding items. Any insights as to, to the origin of that cave or the peoples uh, whose belongings and in some cases remains uh, were at one point or are maybe perhaps still present there? Yeah, so um, the cave was probably originally first dug in the 1910s, 1920s. The Smithsonian was down here uh, kind of looking into caves. They were kind of trying to, you know, they were kind of trying to look at the link between this area and the larger southwest. And um, there was a rancher at the time that said that, you know, he was looking for Spanish gold and there was no Spanish gold in the cave. And the Smithsonian wrote back saying that there's probably you know, there's probably indigenous stuff in there. And then it passed through a series of landowners that, you know, they just didn't see the utility of it for, you know, being a place of, you know, um, you know, indigenous remains, be that material or, you know, human. And they saw a way to make money. So they, you know, these previous landowners let people come dig it for a fee and it passed through, I'm not entirely sure how many hands, but there's decades of people that went down and paid a little bit of money and got to keep stuff, anything that they wanted, really. Now, were some and, of these, I'm, were, and were some of the items actual human remains that they kept? Yeah, so that's there's a really long history of letter writing from this, and this cave's got this very unique double entrance to it, and that's you know every one of these people that you know paid somebody, they they. They were all amateur folks. They were none of them were trained archaeologists. They were all just people interested, you know, in the in in the past, really. And they um, um, they tried to get professionals involved, but were so remote out here that uh, um, nothing, you know, nothing came of that. They wrote letters to everybody. So I have all these letters, and as near as I can tell, the there's. There's there's letters that detail four sets of ancestral human remains coming out, but there's probably only three that uh, were taken out, and um, I've been able to find uh, all three sets, and that's kind of that kind of leads into the story that's out in the public um, is retracing those and trying to figure out how to get them out of private collections and you know to to people that. You know, there's still a large indigenous presence down here to them. And Brian, for some clarification for our listeners, so this cave was first dug about a hundred years ago, and then what time frame was this? Uh, like, were people paying paying to dig and then taking items out? Do you do you know about what period that was? Uh, it was from about the 1950s until uh, about the 19 late 1960s and the 1970s. It changed uh, owner. Ship and he stopped the new owner in the 1970s. Stopped letting people pay in there for um, a fee, and then he just dug it. And he's actually the the 1970s landowner has actually given me his entire collection, which is totally devoid of any human or it's mostly corn. So okay, 
So now there's a, there's this new landowner since 2010, and they own the cave. They own everything in it. Um, and uh, it sounds like they're trying to do the right thing in terms of just being respectful of, of what's what the cave represents. And are they, are they is there anything they can do or anything anybody really can do about all these items and some of these remains that are now gone over the over the decades to private collectors and explorers and some of these other people that were just kind of scavenging through that cave? Yeah, there's really not a legal recourse, unfortunately. We, I thought that, you know, maybe we've had long conversations with, you know, tons of different cultural property lawyers about if, you know, if this, because they now own the cave, if this stuff's retroactively theirs, and that's not the case. And I thought that, you know, um, you know, the reason that we ended up doing DNA in that, in the, 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 um, the spirit eye case, the cave case is because, uh, to try to show these people that, you know, that still own the stuff that there's related to people that are here. And that's not, that's something that's kind of interesting in the conversation is that these people just, it's their stuff, regardless of, you know, who you can't really, you can't really tell them that it's ancestral. So the new, uh, to, you know, indigenous communities. So the new, uh, landowner, you know, once we found out it was bodies, I had always envisioned, um, kind of getting them back in there and, and reburying it and kind of walking away from the cave. Because, I mean, from a research perspective, it's pretty impacted. So there's not, there's really nothing I can do there other than, you know, try to make it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still where we are. I thought it would be a much, I think both of us, the landowner and I, I thought it would be a much easier process. And uh, we've, learn stuff we've started a conversation but we don't really have any of that stuff returned because there isn't a recourse there isn't there's no like real legal way to do it okay brian there's another point in the article um when the director of a, a small museum in pecos texas allowed you to see the remains of human remains that were in their possession can you elaborate for our listeners what that experience was like Um, yes, uh, it was, uh, I'm, uh, this is a pretty far afield for me anyways. I'm kind of just like a, you know, I'm a dirt archaeologist and this was all new for me, but this experience in particular was, uh, uh, there's nothing on the planet that can ready you for that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it took me a long time to get there and it took me a long time to talk with them and it took them kind of a long time to, I mean, even have that conversation with them, and then you have the conversation, and it's, I, I don't even know, you know, the, what's the appropriate way to even have that, because clearly there's two much different views on what that set uh-huh. of, you know, okay. ancestral human remains means, and it was... Okay. Well, Brian, was, I mean, <laughs> nothing on the planet that our listeners are, well, what is it? What is it? I mean, apparently this, it was under like some kind of a picture frame. There was like a vault. I mean, it sounded like something out of like a movie or something. I mean, it was just, it sounded so surreal. So please give us some, some details. Cause it just, I think it would really help our listeners kind of frame this conversation with regard to the treatment of, of some of these ancestors remains. 
Yeah. So I guess I mean the easiest way to say it is that it's it's they've been hidden and they're they're behind essentially a fake wall. So a fake they the you know the people that you know currently own them had to basically tell me that they didn't exist and they had told me that they were in the attic and so I started heading towards the attic but then this like whole fake wall was deconstructed uh uh in the middle of their you know what looks like a house and uh, behind this fake wall is a fake cave that has a set of very well preserved human remains and okay. you know ancestral <laughs> human remains and they walked they kind of left me there and kind of walked off and I just stood there for I have no idea how long with my mouth open I there's like I said, there's like just nothing in the world that can prepare <laughs> okay, you for yeah. that. I know. I mean, I want to kind of chuckle, but I, I I shouldn't because this is really really serious. And I mean, what would inspire? I'm just trying to think. What would inspire somebody to to build this faux wall and this vault and and house remains? Like, I, I mean, did you ask them like, hey, why do you have human remains buried in your wall? And do you have any intent or any interest in maybe returning those remains or letting those remains lie and rest? Like, probably their ancestors would have preferred? They, uh, I mean, we had that conversation, and the uh, the conversation was essentially they're doing a very good job of taking care of them, and I think that they felt, um, I think that they felt like, you know, this is, uh, you know, we have every right, and we're doing a very good job of taking care of it, and uh, that was about as far as we could get the conversation. I couldn't, and sadly, they even, legally they have that right to say that. Yeah. As well. Okay. Yeah. All right, folks. Uh, really interesting conversation today here on Native America Calling. Give us a call if you'd like to chime in. We'll be right back. Tribal courts have a limited scope, but are an important way to determine justice for a wide range of offenses. Many tribal court officials are making inroads with innovative programs that promote healing over punishment. We'll hear about the growing collective strength of tribal courts on the next Native America Calling. Halt. Domestic violence is not traditional. Contact your local Indian health care provider. Call 1-800-318-2596 or visit www.healthcare.gov slash SEP dash list slash hashtag domestic abuse to learn more about special enrollment periods available for survivors of domestic abuse. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on indigenous ancestral items and remains found on private lands and in private collections. If indigenous ancestral remains or items were discovered on your land or in your late relative's belongings, what's your next move? Give us a call. Join the conversation. 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I would like to provide a note of guidance for our show today. We want people to understand that today we are talking about references to human remains and sacred cultural items. So if you are a listener that might find this subject matter sensitive, please be advised. Be advised that that is the focus of our show today. And right now we're talking with Brian Schroeder. He is the director of the Center for Big Big Bend Studies at Saul Ross University. He is in Alpine, Texas. And uh, 
Brian, you just got done telling us about this really bizarre situation of this uh, family that has human remains, indigenous remains housed uh, in their home. And it just begs the question here. I mean, really, I mean, I want to give some of these folks, uh, I guess I shouldn't say the benefit of the doubt, but it just seems like I'm hoping that things have changed. And I'm hoping that that a lot of these stories and these collections and some of these behaviors are are things that, that people did decades ago, and they're just kind of remnants of just some bad decisions. But uh, is that true? I mean, has archaeology changed considerably over the last few decades? And um, are we seeing people and, and excavators being more sensitive and understanding when it comes to indigenous remains? Or is stuff like this still going on, do you think? Uh, I think that archaeologists, as, I mean, as a discipline, yeah, I think we, we've had a really good, you know, strong reckoning. But most of these people are just folks that own the land. They don't even, they don't even talk to archaeologists. I mean, these are these are things that, you know, they own and they legally can go dig here in Texas. And, you know, it's a private private land state. And so they go dig them and they keep them. And, you know, the only way to actually even learn about this is, you know, you got to go out there, you, you got to you got to find the people that are doing this. So some of it, I would say some of the behaviors changed, but, you know, people are people still dig mm-hmm. archaeology sites and land. Um, now, if they, I, 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 I mean, I'm thinking, so, you know, there, there are two, there, people might find items, right? You could find arrowheads, you could find pottery shards, you could find, uh, remnants of clothing and things like that. That's one thing. And then you could also potentially find human remains. And, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a crime. If you find any human remains on any property, that has to be reported. <laughs> it should be reported. Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you are. It's state by state, uh, for sure. I mean, if it's by a professional archaeologist, yes, it has to. You have to report it. But as a private landowner, I, you know, we're probably the last to know. I mean, I don't think they would. Okay. They are, so they, if somebody. Okay. So if somebody in Texas is just out in their yard, maybe digging a hole to put a sprinkler system in or something like that, and they find a skull. Uh, in Texas, are they required by law to to call the authorities? Ooh, uh, we're getting a little far afield of my expertise, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I, mean, I think they, I think they, I mean, I hope they would, but I I, I really don't know. Um, they they're supposed to because then yeah, there's a health and safety code where they would it would retroactively kind of name that area a verified or unverified cemetery. So yeah, there's they're uh, they should yes, but. If they do, uh, that's another matter. <laughs> do you know of, of any other states that have specific protections for remains or any prohibitions on owning human remains? I mean, again, I apologize if that's kind of out of your will, well, but I just think it's such a fascinating and kind of just bizarre and thing to think about. As far as I know, I mean, uh, cremains are something that you can own, but most other states, I mean, you just you can't own human remains, period, regard, irrespective of time. Um, and I mean, they just can't own them. Um, I'm not sure what the exact number of that is, but uh, it seems like a fairly easy, easy thing to legislate against, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of cremains, you just can't own people. And people get really uh, incensed by the word own, but it is. It's owning. I mean, it, there's no other way to say it. Like These people really... I mean, at least the people I've talked with, it's it, it it is a sense of ownership. Right, right. 
Let's bring another voice into the conversation now. We have Kenny Bohekti. He's joining us from Zuni, New Mexico. He's a tour guide and archaeologist for the Pueblo of Zuni, and he's Zuni Pueblo. Kenny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Kenny, so listening to this conversation here uh, and Brian telling us about this cave in Alpine, Texas, and then this this house there in, in Pecos, Texas with Rains, what's your initial reaction when you hear stories like this, Kenny? I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not, um, I, I haven't, this ain't the first time I've, I've, you know, heard and saw anything like this because, well, here in, in Zuni and in New Mexico, uh, significance of our of our past is literally out there. And, um, you know, it's just uh, uh, one of those things uh, where, again, as, as an archaeologist, you know, when you do find significance of, of, of the past uh, of, of indigenous uh, peoples, you know, the, the proper and, and the legal way is to, you know, report it. But again, um, as Brian said, uh, when it comes to private owners, um, there's little that the law can do. And Native Americans, Grave Protection Act and the Archaeological Protection Act, you know, in, in private jurisdictions really have their hands tied. And you know, uh, it's as said, uh, it's it's the owners of these land that uh, and plots that, of course, should have that sort of respect and 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 the significant right to say, hey, there were people here before us or or previous owners, and you know, um, but yeah, it's it's not a total surprise to me, uh, you know, because I've I've encountered many many uh uh events of this mm-hmm. type throughout my throughout my career and so but yeah i mean it's it's uh, it's a sad thing that you have to hear but of course it's it's one of those uh, like i've always said a no win situation Kenny, you've been an archaeologist for more than 30 years. Uh, have you worked with, with private landowners or any of these private collections uh, to bring items back to your Pueblo, to your homelands there in Zuni? Yes, yes. Uh, well, as, as a, I started out as an archaeologist, and of course it, it uh, rode on for several years, but uh, the archaeology branch here, of course, there has, has many departments, and of course later on, I ended up being a compliance and a, a consultant, which, of course, under the pre- uh, preservation department, we would um, talk to um, museums and, and and landowners, and you know, we're uh, sometimes we're we're quite lucky to have a private owner call or come up and say, you know, I got I got this on my land, I need a professional to come take a look at it, and so. There has been some of uh, continuity between uh, private landowners and archaeologists, you know, well, especially with here with Zuni. And so, you know, uh, having to um, see this over the course of many years, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's just, you know, as I say, I always keep saying, it's, it's, 
it's about the landowner's intuitions mm -hmm. and and how they react and feel about about um, you know uh, significance of of past uh, uh, you know ancient villages and stuff and you know for example we we were doing surveys for our uh, Salt Lake um, in Fence Lake, uh, New Mexico. And over there, it, it's checkerboarded. There's BLM land, uh, state land, private lands. And, um, you know, some of these people were, were okay with us walking around and looking for archaeological significance. And then there were others where, in, in reality, we <laughs> I had a shotgun pointed at us. Um, you know, I've had people try to run over us, uh, do a lot of things, you know, but it's just, uh, you know, one of those things where private landowners, you know, if, if they feel that their, their, their lot or their land is being encroached upon, they, you know, they have in, in their own rights, they have this mindset to, to protect their land. And yeah. And so, you know, in my career, I, I, I've seen a lot of this, and then I've dealt with those landowners who, who just wouldn't want any anybody mm -hmm. to go chatting on, on their land. So, Kenny, what, what I mean, uh, let's just think of uh, anybody listening on the show today. Let's say, like I said earlier, they're outside doing some work around their house. They're on, they're on their land, maybe, and they're digging, and, and they find any, any item. It could be human remains. It could be an, an artifact of some sort. What do they need to do? What's the first step they should, they should take? Well, legally, you know, I mean, uh, anything should be reported to the proper authorities, and then... Uh, Course. And who? I'm sorry. Who uh, those, would that be? The police? Would that be like? This? It could be. It could be the law enforcement, especially you know, with human remains. Um, uh, you know, um, with with human remains, you know, the law enforcement should be the first to be contacted. So as they would be the ones to basically determine if it's a, if it's if it's somebody from, you know, a couple of years who may have been missing, whatever. Or they could uh, um, assess it to where they identify these remains as ancestral. And then that's where the proper uh, agencies like an archaeological firm will be notified. Then, of course, preservation lists and all of that will, will now fall into play. And so, yeah, any, any discovery, uh, of course, artifacts like pottery shards and all of that is, is um, also a significant identification of possible buried uh, structures and, and, and possible human remains. And yeah, the first and, and foremost thing to do on, on any note um, is, is to report it to, you know, to, to the, to the police, maybe <clears throat> uh, wildlife, fish and wildlife, rangers, whatever, Mm -hmm. Or maybe an individual knows an archaeologist or knows of an archaeological firm. These are the proper agencies that should be notified. Okay. Now, I know one challenge or, or, or one one thing that, that, that makes landowners hesitant, some, like let's say somebody's working on a construction project. Maybe they're, they're remodeling a house or they're, they're working on like a driveway or maybe a sewer system, and they've got a contractor out there, and there's money on the line. You know, this could be like an expensive project. And, and they come upon something, and then they're like, well, you know, we should report this. But if we report it, it might mean, you know, delays with our project. This could cost us money. And um, 
What's your thought on that, Kenny? Because I think some people just feel like, well, you know, I should do this, but, you know, maybe if I just don't say anything, I can just finish my project and, and move along. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in, 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 in any other form of, you know, infrastructure to anything, if it's on state, state or local or, or federal lands, whatever, and, and let's say there's a, a Walmart being built, and that's you get you get all kinds of thousands of money, and you'll you'll get the proper sort of um, preparation by getting cultural clearances, uh, archaeological surveys, maybe uh, testing here and there, and, and you know then then of course when when the archaeologists feel that there is a clearance and and that that you know infrastructure can proceed, yeah, but of course when um a, a you know a, a homeowner is is doing his foundation extending a wall or whatever and runs into significance that should be reported because you just never know um what might be below you know mm-hmm. uh, sometimes uh, ancient villages i mean i've seen i've seen um yeah, water lines and all of these things being placed, especially here in Zuni, where where our history is very deep and complex, literally within the matrix. <laughs> right, um, right. You can you can't really go too far to to hit any kind of significance, and so you know most, if not some of these outskirts where uh, our ancient uh, villages would remain, these would have been habitated for long periods of time and of course uh, life doesn't last you know over a hundred years to where people will pass on and they will place their loved ones in 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 what are these grave sites or mitten deposits and you just never know uh you know especially in these days where sediments have built up for hundreds of years it'll it'll blanket cover um an ancestral village fixed eight feet uh, and and uh, later on, people come in and start building. You just never know if you're going to put your house on top of a of a grave site. And <laughs> of right. course, those are the kinds of things that you know. Uh, when it comes to building, and you see something like this, even if it's just a pottery shard, one pottery shard could lead to a, a massive possible uh, uh, settlement area. And the, it's just. The possibilities are great, even if there are just a few tangibles okay. of, of artifacts here and there, and it, and and that's what you know people should um, know and, and common sense about. Oh, well, there's a pottery shard here. Maybe there's something below. And but of course, if you want to have a safe home and environment, uh, of course, this, this, these are the things that should be investigated. Absolutely, private absolutely. or federal or or or, or in any case. Kenny, we're going to have to take a, a break here shortly, but um, I know you also do archaeology tours there in Zuni, and I, I'm interested in, in, in learning what do exactly folks get to look at, and, and I mean, do you allow people to take things home with them from those tours? <laughs> no, absolutely okay. not. Uh, archaeological tours here are basically to our to ancestral villages, and we have tons and tons of them. And then, uh, of course, the legacy with the Pueblo of Zuni, we have what is this uh, this great 
theory of history of the seven cities of gold. And where all of this really runs through the Pueblo of Zuni. In these archaeological tours, we, we go to what are these ancestral villages. We, we visit the sites. We look at the artifacts there. We give them the history. And, and um, of course, my our archaeological background here, of course, runs with our experience in, in conducting real-world archaeological procedures and research. <clears throat> and, of course, I've been, been doing it for almost 30 years. And, uh, of course, I... Although I'm semi-retired from archaeology, uh, you know it, it's embedded in my head. <laughs> okay. Where you know the proper procedures of all of this is really, uh, we go to these sites, and, right. and of course we teach the history. Kenny, we're going to have to take a break now. A really, really fascinating conversation. Learning about artifacts, human remains on private lands. Give us a call one eight hundred nine nine six two eight four eight if you want to get in on this conversation. We'll be right back. Early voting has started, but with possible changes in district lines and state election laws, it's more important than ever to know how, when, and where to vote. That's why AARP created state-specific election guides where you can find up-to-date information about how to register, where to vote, the rules for early voting, and key deadlines. You don't have to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about indigenous ancestral items and remains found on private land. For the most part, NAGPRA doesn't apply, but there are ways tribes can work with individuals to repatriate remains and items. Have you contacted a tribe to return remains or items? There's still time to join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us next from Rincon, California, is Shannon O'Loughlin. She's an attorney and the executive director of the Association on American Indian Affairs. She's Choctaw. Shannon, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hey, how are you today? Doing really well. I'll tell you, though, I'm uh, a little bit disturbed by our conversation today. Some of these uh, issues, some of these stories we're hearing about are just so so bizarre and just unsettling in many ways. And I, I know sometimes uh, cultural items, funerary objects, they, they can be found selling on eBay. And in fact, right now there's an auction. There, as I understand, there's an auction online that's selling off items of cultural patrimony as we speak. And uh, Shannon, I, I know you're paying close attention to that. Tell us more. What's going on exactly? Yeah, so um, Bonham's in Los Angeles um, has a huge uh, uh, number of lots of sensitive Native American cultural heritage for sale. There have been tribes that have been working with Bonhams over the last several weeks to try to get certain sensitive items pulled. I'm not going to share which items those are, which nations are seeking the return of these sensitive items, because I don't want to be responsible for um, uh, raising the prices of, of what may be sold at auction. I, I don't want to be responsible for that. So um, when the time comes and those nations want to talk about their experience with Bonhams, I hope that they will because though the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which is federal law, and it mandates that there are certain types of sensitive cultural heritage items that um, 
could not, uh, no one could take these items without the proper authorization from tribes, without their free prayer and informed consent. And those types of items are our ancestors' remains and their burial belongings, as well as sacred, cultural, and religious patrimony. Those items can't be owned by an individual, and they can't be removed from um, tribal um, hands without uh, uh, official authorization. And, and federal law declares that, unfortunately, okay. I'm sorry, under Shannon. NAGPRA. I'm just really yes. quickly. So because there's often, okay, you know, the way a lot of people interpret NAGPRA is it's it only applies to arts, museums, universities, and institutions that receive federal monies. But you're saying that some of these some of these issues with regard to human remains or sacred objects, they supersede that and they apply to everybody? So I'm, I'm I'm saying that federal law announces that there are certain types of items that are the cultural heritage and cultural patrimony of tribes, but NAGPRA only provides a remedy okay. for federal agencies and museums requiring them to repatriate, to work with tribes and repatriate. But that does not mean that that federal law does not support other federal, state, and tribal laws that declare theft is illegal, that declare um, that you can't take federal, uh, or I'm sorry, tribal property without um, free prior and informed consent. And these are these are laws that, that predate NAGPRA. So NAGPRA actually came out of, of a current body of federal, state, and tribal law that was meant to protect uh, uh, tribal uh, hands on our items. So there is other law out there available. The problem is, is that auction houses and private collectors have a lot more leverage in these issues than we have. Okay. Shannon, going back to this auction, and you mentioned that some of these tribes are, are, are pushing back on these on this auction house. What has been the auction house's response to that? Are they Are they acknowledging these concerns with tribes, and are they answering any of these requests? They have um, been speaking with the tribes about certain types of items. Um, the tribes are asking for items to be removed from auction so that their provenance, the, the information um, uh, that uh, tells where that item came from and how it was removed from their nations, um, uh, so that that provenance can be investigated. And what we find with Bonhams and other uh, of these kind of elite uh, auction houses like Sotheby's Christie's, um, Heritage, and, and Bonhams, among others, is that they owe the public um, uh, good faith and to act in good faith that they are um, making sure that they can sell these items. And Bonhams is one of the uh, auction houses that do no tribal consultation. Um, they don't reach out to tribes uh, before these items go up for auction and say, hey, is, are there claims to these items? These items seem to be sensitive cultural heritage and could be burial belongings. Um, uh, does this individual who's trying to consign them with us truly have um, ownership of these items so they become commercial property? And like I said, federal law declares that there are certain items that cannot be owned outside a tribal nation without that tribe giving, giving away that right of possession.
So, Jen, I mean, what what is the answer here with regard to these private collections and these auction houses? Are, are, are there any major efforts and a push for repatriation of sacred or important cultural objects held in these private collections? Is, is there any way to, to enforce some of these some of these um, these laws, these federal laws with regard to how these items are supposed to be protected? So, so the, the laws as they stand now um, would require tribes to litigate ownership about certain items. And litigation is not uh, not a cheap um, or short-term easy solution. So quite often what, what uh, Native nations try to do is educate the auction house as well as the holder of the items, how important these items are, um, where they actually came from, their stories, and how important they are to revitalize um, Native American cultures and identities that have been um, you know, violently removed from them. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so generally, tribes work to help negotiate and educate for the return of items in private collections. Um, and through that, like museums have found, museums have found that that when they work with tribes and and better understand what's in their collections, they also are better able to educate the public and serve their mission. And uh, these private collectors quite often want some sort of, of of pat on the back of being the caretaker for these items for the period of time they have been. And oftentimes the relationships can build between tribes and these private collectors. So these collectors uh, uh, could even potentially have a trade of the um, what they call an antiquity or an artifact uh, which is our sensitive cultural heritage, and trade it with a contemporary artist's work that was made to share with the public, right? And so the association is doing that as well. We're trying to make sure that buyers beware because laws are changing and our uh, advocacy on these issues is growing stronger, um, uh, that they should be buyers should be investing in um, contemporary Native artists' work uh, that are meant to be shared with the world, and that uh, cultural heritage items should not are are not and should not be sold in the open market. Mm-hmm. And our tribes uh, are are they able to to have more influence with regard to to many of these museums or archaeological attractions and and how these items are are housed and displayed? Uh, through through NAGPRA, uh, tribes have, uh, uh, because of the law, have been able to uh, open the door of these institutions and work and educate those uh, museum curators and others about proper um, exhibits and what should be shared. Um, it's also given uh, tribes an op- option, or they have, open their own tribal museums and cultural centers um, so that they have control of the story and how certain items are represented and how those stories are told uh, versus quite often false stories <laughs> about uh, what non-natives believe the items in their possession are. Earlier this year, we did a show on this uh 
this fake archaeological site up in Manitou Springs, Colorado. It, the, years ago, they had taken some of the buildings from Mesa Verde and reconstructed them. And, and you might be familiar with this this site. It's a, it's a tourist attraction, is what it is. It's up in in Manitou Springs, Colorado, and um, and they have a number of remains there. And it's just uh, out of context is what one of our guests said at the time in terms because there's no scholarship in that when these remains are removed like that. And and I know you joined the show a, a little bit later, Shannon. I'm not sure. Did, did you get a chance to hear our our first guest, Brian Schroeder, talk about uh, the house that he visited in in Pecos, Texas, that had uh, indigenous remains in, inside a wall. Did you did you hear that part of our show? Uh, yes. Okay, yes. so I'm just curious. I mean, based on everything that that you're you're explaining to us today, with regard to to federal law and human remains, and I mean, what what's the answer? What what can be done about a situation like it? Like if if I were to suddenly go into a home now and see something like that, what what can I do? Even if it's a private home, but there's there's ancestral remains like that. What what do I need to do? Call the police. Call the police. Uh, uh, there is actually an FBI arts crime team that investigates this very thing. And so it is not legal in most states to um, have uh, human remains in your home um, uh, like that. Uh, so quite often uh, calling either uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs Law Enforcement or the FBI Art Crimes Team, which uh, the association has on its website um, under uh, repatriation and, and auction uh, areas on our website. Um, that's what we should do, and we should also find out for sure if this um, home or this west of the Picos Museum um, has ever received any dime of federal funding, and that federal funding um, could come through a PPP loan. It could come mm. um, through um, some kind of uh, uh, maybe they were reimbursed uh, from uh, a flood um, or other citywide uh, support. Um, so it doesn't have to be um, direct federal funding. It could come through the state or the county even, um, and that can be declared um, as federal funding. So there's lots of opportunities to research here. The National NAGPRA program also has a a civil penalties investigator who can help look at issues just like this to determine whether um, uh, there are remedies under the civil penalty a portion of NAGPRA or whether they may rise to um, illegal trafficking or criminal um, violations of NAGPRA. Shannon, we, we did have a caller. They didn't want to come on the air, but they did have a comment that they shared with our producers. And, and, and this is a person that uh, apparently found what what they think are most likely human remains um and uh, I think it was it was at it was at a museum. It's a museum, not a house, where they they saw what they thought were human remains, and they reported it to authorities, and nothing happened. And is that a scenario you've heard before, where people try to do the right thing, and then there's no follow up from authorities? Absolutely, and I think that's when, especially if the local authorities um, refuse to act. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, the National NAGPRA program is really a great place to go with those types of concerns because they can get and they know 
um, who were the best folks to bring in to help uh, resolve those types of issues. And they probably have local contacts that they could reach out to. Um, so either the National NAGPRA program or the Association on American Indian Affairs is absolutely um, helpful uh, to help get people uh, the right support they need when when they encounter. Okay, uh, and I just yeah. th- thanks, Shannon. And I just want to clarify: they, th- these remains were not, or what they suspect are remains, were, were not in a home, were not in a museum. They were found uh, on private land, private land, I think this person's land, and then they they contacted authorities who then didn't follow up, and they weren't able to get any any additional insights in terms of of what to do. So. Um, Shannon, what are some other resources available out there, either on the Internet or in, in tribal libraries, anywhere where folks can learn a little bit more about some of these laws and, and also just some best practices for um, homeowners and anybody else that's a landowner or just somebody who's just concerned about some of these issues with regard to funerary items and, and remains and, and sacred objects that could be found anywhere? Right. And I, I think the the first place we, we start is is... We think about uh, whose land we're standing on and the burden that comes with that. So um, uh, with civilization and the taking of of Indian lands, our our burial places and sacred places have been disrupted. So your private land may now rest on um, uh, those sacred places and those burial places. Um, places. And so it becomes your responsibility as a landowner to do the right thing and to take responsibility for that burden that you've, um, that you have as a private landowner. Um, And it's not just about um, Native American identity, culture, health, and healing, um, which is how we view repatriation and, and the return and restoration of, of our, our culture and cultural heritage. But it's also about understanding who Native people are. And the more uh, people who are unfamiliar with um, archaeology and removing things from the ground, um, the more that things are taken up, the less that we can put together to better understand what happened um, before 1492. Okay, okay. Um, I'm sorry, Shan. We have reached the end of the hour. I'd like to thank all of our guests on the show today, Dr. Brian Schroeder, Shannon Keller O'Loughlin, and Kenny Bohekiti for an intriguing discussion on remains and items of indigenous cultural patrimony held in private collections. Join us tomorrow for a conversation about tribal courts. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant clinical Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application deadline is October 15th at online.nmhu.edu. 
Waka. Domestic violence is not traditional. Contact your local Indian health care provider. Call 1-800-318-2596 or visit www.healthcare.gov slash SEP dash list slash hashtag domestic abuse to learn about special enrollment periods available for survivors of domestic abuse. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.